Okay, so good evening, folks. We're, we're going to be in Philippians 4 for uh, most of our message tonight. I want to move into the, the next room of our spring clean, as it were, and I want to come up out of the basement, away from the foundations, and to go into our office now again. I know maybe not everyone has an office in their homes, but I call my office the, the study, so I, I study, but even if you don't have a room dedicated to your thinking or to, you know, working, I bet every single person here has that, uh, that spot for, for that kind of thing that goes on. You, you'll have that one spot, uh, that seat at the table that you always sit in to fill in your, your paperwork or, or forms that come in, or you like to have, there's a certain seat beside a lamp that you'd like to go to. There's always this wee spot that we like to have either at quiet times or to do our paperwork. There's this kind of spot that we have that says, okay, if I'm in this chair and I've got the lamp on, I've got, I mean business. Tonight, I want us to think about how these places that we have in our homes represent our minds. And to think specifically about the biggest enemy to our mental health. Sorry, no, that's maybe not true. It's not, not, not the biggest, but perhaps the most common threat to our mental health, anxiety. There are many enemies to our minds. There are lies that we tell ourselves. There are uh, the sources that we allow to shape and to inform our decision-making processes. But I can't realistically deal with all of them in one message, or, or maybe it's a series for a, a later stage in the year. But tonight I want to focus in on one area in particular, anxiety. Now let me get the terminology clear from the start, because while I'm speaking about being anxious and feeling anxiety, I'm not talking about the realm of diagnosable illnesses here. Um, that's a very different thing to feeling the everyday feelings of worry and losing sleep over a problem. Uh, the diagnosable anxiety is a paralyzing fear that takes people out of work and can take people's lives. I'm not thinking about that extreme definition tonight, although if I do talk about it, I'll, I'll make it clear when I am. Generally, I'm thinking about the more shallow end of, of the area here, where we all have our worries, where we all have our doubts, where we all have our concerns. And even then, they can all, in different degrees, steal from us. They all, all types of anxiety steal. Some are, are very, very powerful. Others are more subtle. But anxiety, regardless of the form it takes, is a thief. It steals our thoughts. It steals our peace, it steals our hope, it steals our joy, it steals our confidence. A story I heard about a woman who couldn't sleep because she got it into her head one night that her home might get burgled. And so night after night, she lay awake. Every little noise, every little creak, every leaf that blew up against the window, <gasps> somebody's in the house. And it plagued her thinking for a long time. Day after day, week after week, month after month, for a number of years, she had this plaguing thought. For 10 years, she lost sleep until her health started to go downhill. Well, one evening, sure enough, she and her husband both heard a noise downstairs. Her husband got up, went downstairs to find out what the noise was. And would you believe it? It was a burglar. The husband saw the burglar and said to him, excuse me, would you mind coming upstairs to meet my wife? She's been waiting 10 years to meet you. The point is simple. 
a real burglar can steal from you once. But the burglar of anxiety can steal from you for a lifetime. Now, it's sort of strange to me what we worry so much about, what concerns us. We put filters on our taps. We put ionizers in our homes. We lather ourselves in antibacterial soap. We buy products with antioxidants and essential oils. I don't know what either of those last two things are. Um, I have no idea what the right amount of oxidants are and why antioxidants are a good thing or not. And if essential oils are so essential, I don't know why Pantene are left in charge of it. I don't know. And yet at the same time, 20% of adults smoke, 20% of drivers don't wear seatbelts, and 75% of those who own mobile phones text while they drive. Which tells me that we worry about perceived dangers a lot more than what we worry about real dangers. Philippians 4 then has a series of commands from Paul. And when you start going through the verses at the start, you get this idea of he's really bullet pointing the things here as he brings his letter to a close. And so he says, verse 1, stand fast. Verse 2, I implore you. And he's talking to two ladies there. Verse 3, I urge you, rejoice again. I say rejoice. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to people. And so he's got this kind of rhythm going. He's got this flow going to how he's speaking. Because when we get to our verses for tonight, we need to know that Paul's continuing this style of writing. He's handing out his, his marching orders, his commands as an apostle under the inspiration of God. And so he says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I can't prove it, but perhaps some of you read that and you go, well, I had higher hopes for this service, but if this is what, where we're going, Jeff, it's nice, but it's naive. It's simplistic. It's unsophisticated. It's nice, you know, for a bookmark or, you know, for a quote or something, but this isn't really going to cut it for real-life problems. This isn't going to cut it for the stuff that I'm actually worrying about. I want you to know that it is simple, but it is not simplistic. There is a big difference between something being simplistic and something being simple. The truth, as most of you will know, as you get older, you discover that most truth is simple truth. It is only lies and deceit that become more complicated. You listen to a politician speaking and, and trying to weave his way around all the minefields without committing himself, without, without sounding committed, gets very wordy very quickly but the truth is very simple. And so this truth tonight, it is simple, but is also needful because anxiety can grip, and once it digs in, it can be an unwelcome guest that will not leave, and it stains and contaminates everything else that's going on. It infiltrates and permeates through all the different aspects of our lives. It doesn't stay where it's supposed to. It kind of works its way into everything. And so I've got four principles that, will help us to address this issue of anxiety tonight, to deal with the bad habits and mismanagement of thoughts and feelings that grow out of control. So that's the spring clean tonight. So number one, let's start with the problem. 
The problem is the second word, anxious. Do not be anxious. Anxiety is the problem, and it's a problem all human beings at some point have to deal with. But you have to start by acknowledging that it's a problem, okay? If you just say, oh, well, it's just part of life, well, then you'll have no interest in dealing with it. But if you say, okay, I do not want to feel this way. I do not want to have to fight this fight all the time. I want to wage a war against this. Then we have to start by acknowledging that it's something we have to wage war against. Make sense? The word is interesting that, that is used here. It's translated in, into English as anxious. The original word in the Greek is mermnau. Um, i just put it up there because I'm just showing off. Uh, mermnau appears 19 times in 17 New Testament verses. It's translated into three different English words. So across your Bible, it'll maybe look differently. Um, it might be worry, might be anxious, or cares. Worry, anxious, care, mermnau. The word comes from two different Greek words put together. And when I tell you what those two words are, I'll give you a really good idea of what the Bible is trying to tell us when it talks about our anxieties and our worries and our cares. The first word is meridzu, uh, which means to tear or to separate, uh, to divide. The second word is naus which means the mind. So you put those two together, meridzu and naus, and you have merinau, which means literally to divide the mind. So it's an apt description, I think, of anxiety. Anxiety is when your mind is divided between legitimate thoughts and, and, and destructive thoughts, when you're caught between two things and you can't decide and you're not sure and you're uncertain and you're caught betwixt and between and you don't know what to do and, and, and the anxiety. What do I do next? What am I supposed to be doing? And you're caught, divided mind. You're torn. And maybe you might say, ah, if I'm only torn in two ways, I'd be lucky. <laughs> Sometimes you can be caught in many different ways. James puts it this way. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So when Jesus says, do not worry about your life, that's the word he chose. When Jesus speaks to Martha, he came so distracted and busy, and Jesus came, and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, and Jesus said, Martha, 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 you are worried and troubled about many things. This is the word he chose. You're divided. Your, your mind's not, not, not focused on what you're supposed to be focused on. You're, you're caught up and divided between too many things. It's the same word Paul used in 1 Corinthians 7 when he wrote to them and said, I want you to be without care. It's this word, now. I want you to be without concern or worry or anxiety. Now, I believe of all the times in history, this is a time when these verses are more appropriate than ever before. Um, it, it, this culture, it, it, I think it speaks to our culture in our country um, more than any other. According to Anxiety UK, the website is anxietyuk.com. UK. It, it's not hard to find. One in six adults, according to the website, will experience a mental health issue this year. One in six. One in three will suffer an unmanageable stress conditions in their workplace this year. And according to the research, we are more clinically stressed and anxious than people in Nigeria, Lebanon, and the Ukraine. And if you know your international politics... Nigeria, Lebanon, and Ukraine. 
are fairly stressful places to be living right now. But apparently we're more stressed out. And according to some of the research I came across, the average American high school student has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. So that's kind of where we're at at the minute. So what are we so worried about then? <laughs> what are we not worried about? I think is maybe a better question. But mainly money, funnily enough. Money's right up there. Uh, can we pay our bills now? Or, or perhaps can we afford to retire? What's going to happen whenever we're not earning anything anymore? Or, or perhaps our health care, our NHS provision, and, and are we going to be able to survive long enough or, or live the life that we want in retirement? Now, if, if you're thinking about these things, without the foundations that we were talking about this morning of having Christ at the center of our lives. And, and rather than trying to rank everything, we have everything rotating in orbit around him like, like a solar system, and he's the sun at the center of it. Without having him at the center anchoring us in our orbit around him, the, I can understand how these anxieties and these worries and these cares can consume and overpower people. I can understand that this could be a very hard and difficult, lonely place to be. And so on one website, and I find several of these, I always like to dig in and around this because whenever I don't maybe have the experience and I don't have the um, things on hand, I, I like to have the statistics and, and the background, but in studying for this this week, I found several websites that said it, but here, here's one that said it really articulately. It said, now this is a psychiatric website, okay, this isn't just like a, a newspaper or anything. It says, our goal then shouldn't be to dismiss anxiety entirely, but just to make it a healthy, manageable part of our lives. Now I want you to listen carefully to what that just said. It's saying to us that the very best that the world can do for us is to just somehow cope with it. It is what it is. We're stuck with it. So we just need to be able to bear up with the stress and the anxiety. It's a part of life. You got to deal with it. How do you feel about that? Are you happy with that? You good with that? If that's the deal that's on the table, coping mechanisms? Because the Bible offers a chance to eliminate it. So we have to acknowledge that there's a problem that we have to go and fight. Number two, here's the prescription, verse, verse six again. Do not be anxious for nothing or about anything. Stop right there. If you didn't pick up on this, this is a command. It's put in the present active imperative. In other words, here's Paul writing his letter. He's writing from a Roman prison to a church in Philippi, and he writes in very strong manner. So, you know, it almost like you, you put it in capital letters just for emphasis, with a big exclamation mark at the end. Stop worrying. I command you, which just sounds so absurd if you're a worrier, okay? I don't know if you know warriors or if you are a warrior. It sounds like the most unreasonable thing to do. It sounds naive, doesn't it? It sounds idealistic to tell a warrior, hey, you ever thought about not worrying? You're going to get slapped, <laughs> you know, because that, that's if you, can you think of anything more unrealistic, they're going to say, what planet are you on? You not think that I, you think I'm choosing this? You think I choose to worry? If it was just as easy as just saying, oh, I just never thought to not worry. Oh. 
But to make this a wee bit worse, if you are a worrier, the Greek language is stated so emphatically that the best translation, a literal translation would be to say, stop worrying about even one thing. Now, before you get angry at me, I didn't write it. It was the Apostle Paul. And before you get angry at Paul, let me ask you this. Didn't Jesus say something quite similar? In fact, he said something near, almost identical. But with Jesus, though he said the same thing, he gives us reasons to not allow anxiety to rule over us. Listen to his words. This is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew uh, 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. That's the same word, now. Don't be anxious. What, a, what a, about what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you put on? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valued than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Now, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying or what Paul is saying or what I'm saying. He's not saying, kick back, be lazy. Chill out, it'll all work out fine. That's not what he is saying. Go outside, open up your little beak, and a worm will just fall into it. That's not what he's saying. Birds don't work that way because it doesn't rain worms, at least last I checked. Birds still have to be very busy. The early bird still has to get up early to catch the worm. They still have to put the work in. They have to be busy and diligent about getting their food and building their nests and looking after the family. So he's not saying be lazy. Rather, what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying, what I'm saying is go about your work and don't worry. He's saying don't have an over-anxious concern about life that divides your mind. That's what he's saying. Don't worry doesn't mean just stop thinking, stop trying, stop putting any effort in. He's saying, do your work and try to find the joy in doing it. Because he's using this example of birds. Let me ask you something. Have you ever seen a worried bird? Now, think back now. I'm sure you've seen a bird before. So let me ask you. You ever see him kind of just swept, wiping the sweat off the brow? He's got one wing kind of tucked in on his hip and the other one he's just raw. And he's just going, oh, I just, I can't pay the rent on my nest. And I'm just, oh, what's going on? No. Are the birds busy? Yes. Are they active? Do they set up? But they're also not worrying. They look carefree. They still sing. They still sing. So Jesus says, behold the birds. Now, in the words that I read, the words up on the screen, he also gives us reasons why we should not worry. He says, number one, it's unhealthy. Number two, it's unbecoming. Number three, it's unproductive. So let me just explain those. Number one, it, it's unhealthy. You know worry can impact your health. We, we, this is fact now. We know this. It can hurt you. It can ruin our bodies. It can ruin our minds. Uh, there's biblical examples of this. You go to Daniel 6 and King Darius. You know the story. Daniel was, um, was a man who prayed. The people who 
worked with him, worked under him, didn't like him. He was too successful. He was the, the blue-in. And so they, they, they entrapped the king and signed in legislation that for 30 days, no one could pray except to Darius himself, the king. But Daniel refused to change who he was, change what he was doing, and he was praying. He prayed in the same place in the same time, and he got caught. And so Darius then, realizing he was tricked, realizing he got caught out, had to put Daniel into the den of lions. And Daniel didn't fight. He understood what was happening. He understood what was going on, and he went into the lion's den. Now, while Daniel was in the lion's den, we know what was going on. And the angel of the Lord appeared, and the, and the lions were at peace, and Daniel had a full night's sleep. That's more than what could be said for Darius, because we're told that Darius was up in the palace. Daniel's in the lion's den, but Darius is the one in the palace, and Darius is the one who can't sleep. In fact, we're told in, um, I don't even know the verse, but basically it says that, um, uh, what does it say? That his... His appetite and his, his sleep went from him. He couldn't eat. He couldn't sleep. He was literally worried, sick. But Daniel slept. The Harvard Medical School says those who are gripped by anxiety have a greater risk for developing a number of chronic medical conditions. It affects your digestive system, your respiratory system. It's been linked to heart disease. Anxiety, worry, holding on to these things is unhealthy. And so we've got Moses as well. Right? Do you remember Moses in, in Numbers 11? He's so stressed about Israel that he complains. And listen to his prayer. He says to God, my burden is too heavy for me. Kill me here and now. Now that is a point of, of extreme anxiety. When you're going into the realms of depression and being overwhelmed by life and by circumstances. prayer. Uh, Elijah prayed the same kind of prayer. So did Jonah. So did Jeremiah. It's unhealthy. The second reason that Jesus gives to not worry is because it's unbecoming. It's unbecoming of a child of God. It's not fitting for a child of God to worry. For a child of God to be always always anxious, to always be concerned about every little thing that's going on is in effect saying, God, I don't trust you. I don't trust you to look after me. I know you're my father, but I don't think you're going to be a very good father. And so I, I'm worried. I'm worried about how it's all going to work out. You said some pretty cool things in the Bible. I feel nice for a wee minute or two when I read them. But when I go out and live my real life around real people, I don't expect you're really going to come good in any of those things that you said. I don't trust you. And so to be consumed with anxiety and worry and care betrays a lack of trust in God caring for you. Do you trust God? Then you have nothing to worry about. I'm not saying bad things won't happen. I'm saying that God will look after you while you go through those bad things together with God. Keep going. Keep doing your best. Leave the rest to Him. It's unhealthy. It's unbecoming. It's also unproductive. Remember, He says, which of you by worrying can add an R to your lifespan? It's a good question, isn't it? Jesus says, look, you guys who worry, what's it actually achieved? 
What's it actually achieved? Are you better off for all your stress and all your sleepless nights and all your digestive problems? Are you any better off? Are you productive now that you're struggling to stay awake and work the next day? Are you, are, you, are you better off now? No, of course not. You're not being productive. The old expression, worry is like a rocking chair. It takes an awful lot of effort and you end up going nowhere. So I, f- I found this article. It's the Huffington Post, so I'm not sure just how accurate it is, but that's where I found it. An article they cited by Dr. Joseph uh, Gowey. Um, he did a study on this uh, and research. He said 85% of the things that we worry about never happen. I don't know how you verify that kind of research, but he, he, they, the figure he came up with was 85% of the things that we worry about never actually happen. Of the 15% that does happen, 79% of people found that they handled the difficulty better than they thought they would have been able to, or they, th- they believed that the difficulty taught them lessons that were worth learning. So he concluded that when you do all the maths and calculate all the numbers, 97% of the things that we worry about is just fearful mind punishing you with exaggerations and misconceptions. 97%. So Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Do not be anxious about anything. We've seen the problem, seen the prescription. Number three, let's move on to prayer. Now we get to the solution. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer. Look at the, um, the word but in, in verse 6. I, I know maybe, but I'm digging in here. It's a word of contrast. He, he's pivoting. He, he set up a problem and he says, but. Okay, so he's saying, okay, this, but now look at this. Stop talking about this. We're talking about this now. And he just wants you to pivot in this conversation. Don't do this but instead do the, you know, so he's linking them here together. If the problem is anxiety, then the solution is to replace that energy. It's like God's replacement therapy. Don't do this, but do this instead. People who don't worry, don't just stop and do nothing. This idea of, of people who, who worry, said, these guys, they just, they're just chilled out all the time. They're just in their sun lounger drinking cocktails and just, you know, life is a beach for them and it's just so easy for them. No, that's not how it works. That's not the reality. People who don't worry don't stop and do nothing. Instead, they take that energy and they put it into something else. The cure for worry is to redirect your energy and to replace the anxiety with something different. Focus the mind on something else. The Bible gives this a name. It's called casting called casting. If you're familiar with the verse, 1 Peter 5, verse 7, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Casting all your cares, same word, merinao, same word. The thoughts that divide the mind, don't hold on to the divisiveness, don't hold on to that duality of thinking, get rid. Cast your cares upon him because he cares. Don't carry your cares, cast your cares. God isn't expecting you to go from this nervous wreck to some chilled out, carefree person who doesn't think about things overnight. In fact, that's never the picture of a Christian. 
This idea of someone who never is worried or has never got any concerns or has never got, that's never the picture of a Christian. Think about the pictures of Christians in your Bible, of a soldier in a battle. You think a soldier isn't worried? You think a soldier that's actually involved in real fighting isn't thinking about what might happen if, if he, when he engages the enemy? You think a soldier isn't concerned about the bullets that are coming against him? You think he isn't worried about the cover? You think he's not worried about his brothers in arms? Of course he is. A soldier isn't living in denial. He's living in reality. Think of an athlete striving to win a race. Think he's sitting doing nothing? No. He's making sure that he's got this energy. He's looking at the other runners. He's, He's paying attention to a million other things. There's the pictures of Christians who carry other people, who lift them up when they're falling down. It's someone who agonizes over people and for other people. It's a picture of never, never just lying on a beach doing nothing. But rather, he expects us whenever we feel the walls closing in and we feel ourselves being overwhelmed and we feel that the thing is too big for us, we are to take it to our Heavenly Father who we trust and leave it with Him. It's not that we ever stop thinking about it. Oh, so-and-so's really sick. Who? Oh, no, I stopped thinking about that. I, I cast that oh, ages ago. No, of course we don't stop thinking about it. Like we just, it's never in our brain but rather we think about it with a unified and single thought and we trust God. Like a soldier following orders because he trusts the general. Like an athlete pushing themselves because they trust the trainer and they trust the training that they've had. And so the thought here is to redirect our energies and replace our anxieties with what? What do we replace it with? We replace it with prayer. So the idea isn't that we just stop talking about it or stop thinking about it. The point is that we start talking about it to God. We start thinking about it from God's point of view. See the difference? In everything, by prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving, we let our requests be made known to God. The point is that we stay with God so that we know him well enough to trust him enough. I think there's this idea that Christians who aren't that close to God, that don't really have a good relationship with God, they just want to fire off a a five-second prayer. Oh, God, I hope this all works out. And then it's like, what? I tried to cast it. Why why am I still worried? It's because you still don't know God. It's because you still don't trust him. But the idea of going to God and spending time in prayer and pouring your heart out and going through it and going through it and going through it with God is so that we know Him and we trust Him because we've been with Him and we know Him and we've spoken to Him. That's the idea because then all of a sudden we can trust someone who we talk to. We'll trust someone who we spend time with. You try and fire off a three-second prayer and spit the words out and then not think about God ever again. You're going to find it very hard to trust him in the trials. Very hard to trust him in the trials. Why is it the very first thing that we should do ends up being the very last thing that we try? It's like we let things rumble on and rumble on and we wrestle with it and it gets worse and worse and finally we go, oh man, there's nothing left to do but, tra- but to pray. It's like, well, you could have tried that a couple of days ago. 
Jesus said to his disciples, men are always, ought always to pray and not to faint. Look back at the verse, and you'll notice that he doesn't just say, look, pray about it. Notice what Paul does. He brings all these different words out. There's prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, request, four different ways that we can go about it. And I don't have time to go through this tonight, so what I've done is I've said to the musicians, we're going to go through this a wee bit more next Sunday night. There's more to it than this, but this will be maybe just that, the initial part of it. How do you cast your cares? How do you go through it? And we'll go through that just that wee bit more detail next Sunday night. Um, so we will come back to that. So hopefully you don't think I'm just rushing through this, but I want to get the bigger picture. And then we'll go into the more, some more of the specifics next Sunday. So, so look, number four, as we finish, um, we've had the problem. Number two, the prescription. Number three, the prayer. Number four is the promise. Here's the promise in verse seven. The peace of God. Already I feel relaxed. Already I'm feeling better about this. The peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The phrase peace of God, you know, not every Christian has that. Every Christian has peace with God. Whenever you become a Christian, you no longer are fighting and warring against God. We have peace with him. We have made our peace with him. We're no longer at war, but rather we've been adopted. We're part of his family. We are a son. We are a daughter of Christ. We're no longer fighting and rebelling. We have peace with him. But that doesn't mean you've got peace of God. That's a different thing. Peace with God is, is putting up the red flag. It is a fact. The peace of God is a feeling. And it can be elusive for some. I think I would, I would sum it up maybe, maybe this way. Jesus as Savior brings the peace with God. But Jesus as Lord brings peace of God. Make sense? He's the Lord. He's king. He, he's in charge of it all. It's not just in control of my circumstances, but he's Lord over all. King of kings, Lord of lords. That's who he is. And so when I think of him and know him as Lord, well, he's bigger than this problem. He's bigger than this scenario. He's bigger than this misunderstanding. He's bigger than whatever is going on. And so it's like, ah, okay, I know it's going to be okay because Jesus is Lord. I, I, it's going to be okay. Why? Because I'm not just looking back to this one moment when I prayed a prayer and things were going to be okay and hoping that that's going to tie me through. But rather, I know that now, yesterday, today, forever is the same because Jesus is Lord and he's still the master of the universe and I can trust him because he's for me, not against me. The peace of God, look at the, uh, the description. It surpasses all understanding. It transcends human intelligence, human analysis. You can try to explain it, but you can't explain it. It's a peace of God that transcends our ability to explain. One of my favorite verses is in Isaiah 26. And whenever things are getting a wee bit much, I tend to quote it to myself. It says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. He's Lord. And so I'm going to act like he is Lord. I'm not going to act like I'm the Lord. Like it all has to be sorted out by me and I have to fix it all. I'm going to act like Jesus is Lord. And so the peace of God surpasses understanding. It will, now picture this, it will guard our hearts. 
whenever my heart gets waylaid, whenever my heart gets mixed up, when my heart gets divided and split in so many different ways, when I don't know what way to go or what to do, I don't know what's happening next, it will guard my heart and mind through Christ Jesus. It will protect my heart from that division. So, so, so picture a, a guard, a, a, like a Roman soldier standing at it. He's got a spear, a shield, uh, the stern look on his face. I'm picturing like this bouncer kind of outside some pub in, in this Belfast. It's a, no. Sorry, mate, you can't come in here. Worry, fear. Sorry, name's not on the list. You can't get in. That idea of, no, guarding your heart. He's that wall that, that's going to be stationed outside that, that whenever things come into our mind that could divide it, you're not getting in. You're not getting past. I'm charged with protecting this heart. I'm here to protect this mind. You can't come in. This bouncer is the peace of God. I'm standing at this gate. I am not letting you in to disrupt this person who lives in here. The peace of God that passes understanding will stand guard for the hearts and minds of the people who stand in Christ. Let's go back to the picture of Daniel and Darius. One's in the lion's den. One's got the finest silk bed sheets and a beautiful big four-poster bed. Only one of them sleeping, and it's not the guy you think that would be. The king's tossing and turning in the palace while Daniel sleeps among the lions. And so what it says in Daniel 6, verse 10, it says, Daniel went home. Listen to the language he prayed, give thanks before his God. Verse 11 says, the man found Daniel praying and making supplication to his God. You hear these words, okay? Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. It's the same words that, that, that we're reading in Philippians. What was the result? Peace. Daniel experienced peace of God in the trials. Why? Because he was a man of prayer. He knew exactly what was happening. He knew exactly what would happen to him, but he experienced peace. Did he experience the trials? Yes. Did he experience peace in the trials? Yes. You see, say, so many people say, oh, no, no, but Jeff, no, that story isn't going right because he, he's in the lion's den. I don't want the trials. I don't want the difficult bits. I don't want to be different from anyone. I don't want to get singled out. That's not always an option. Our world is broken. Our world is sinful. We don't have the luxuries of being able to avoid all the problems. Daniel did end up in the lion's den. But he got a good night's sleep even in the den, the lions. Now, I don't want to sound cheap. I don't want to make this sound easy. I know this is a real battleground for many in our church. It's a process. But what I'm saying is it can be done. This is a giant that can be slain because it can be done at a funeral. It can be done in a hospital. It can be done at an accident. It can be done when there's an argument and there's a dispute. Because here's what I want you to see when we put it all together then. We see the, the passage, we, see, we go into the passage with anxiety. We go in with worry, we go in with fear, we go in with doubt, we go in with this divided mind. But we come out of it with the peace of God. And what's the link between those two things? It's prayer. Anxiety, 
prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, requests, peace. That's the process. You begin here, you end here, and that, here's the process you go through. And we'll look at it more closely next Sunday night, and we'll look at how there are other tools that we can use to fight the, the anxiety. It reminds me of a guy who was a real worrywart. Everybody knew him. They'd see him always kind of down and head on the shoulders and worried about absolutely everything, the most ridiculous things. Then one Monday, he came into work, and he was whistling. He had a wee bounce in his step, and he was such a worrier that people picked up on this immediately. And I was like, Joe, what, what is going on with you? He says, well, I, I've hired somebody to do the worrying for me. I realized that I was a real worrier, so I'm paying someone now to do that for me. Oh, Joe, I didn't realize that that was a thing. Um, how much are you paying this guy to worry for you? Paying him £100,000 a year. Joe, you get paid a quarter of that. How are you going to pay him? He says, well, that's for him to worry about. You know, we don't have to pay God to take the worries away from us. We don't have to worry about footing the bill for God to cast or to carry the cares that we cast upon him. It comes with the relationship. It comes with knowing him. It comes with the peace of God. It's part of the joy that comes from knowing him. So let me ask you, why are you still carrying those worries? Why are you still fighting to hold on to things that won't get you anywhere when there's a sovereign Lord who says, would you please just trust me? Would you please just keep close to me? In the words of him, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,